Good morning, Four Corners. People of God, it is a blessing to be with you, to worship our King, our Heavenly Father together, to be under the instruction of God's Word. You know, I've told people before, that, I've told people this before, and they just don't understand it, kind of strange to them, but I said, you know, um, one of the wonderful things about preaching is that you really do preach to yourself, and it amazes me how the Lord cuts me to my heart in the middle of my own sermons. It's amazing how the Lord will preach into my heart spontaneously and unexpectedly uh, in the act of preaching. And so we're all here this morning, uh, not just those on this side of the pulpit, but all around. We're all here this morning sitting under God's Word, sitting under the teaching of God's Word uh, here from the book of Exodus. So if you would go and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. That's where we'll be today. Our time in Exodus has brought us to the ten plagues. The famous, or infamous maybe, ten plagues from God against Egypt. If we were to attach to the plagues the staff to serpent miracle and the Red Sea miracle, as some have done, some have taken the ten plagues and attached these to the ends of it, then we would have 12 signs. So 10 plagues or 12 signs, however this is understood, showing God's glory. All of this showing God's supremacy over the so-called gods of Egypt. And so as we go through all of this, these details, these 10 plagues, we recognize, or these 12 signs, we recognize that God is showing His glory. He's showing His supremacy. And so it is an opportunity for us to behold God, to see God in action, to see God expressing his attributes, showing his character, to see God's power, his nature. This is a time to see that the God of the Bible, the God whom we worship, is not like the gods of the nations, as Jared read to us earlier. He is the true God, He's the living God. He's the real God. There is one real God. Not an idol, a creation of man's imagination or a creation of man's skilled hands. He is the glorious and supreme God, the God who is. We see this purpose for the plagues, this purpose of displaying God's glory, this purpose of God magnifying himself and his supremacy we see this explicitly in Exodus 12, 12, which we'll get to somewhat soon. He says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. This is in the middle of the tenth plague. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And so what God tells us there in Exodus 12, 12 is that the purpose of the plagues, and there's explicitly with the 10th plague, but the purpose of the plagues as a whole is for God to enact his judgment, to execute his judgment on the gods of Egypt. Are the gods of Egypt real? No. Are they inspired by demons? Probably so. As Paul tells us in the New Testament and as early church tradition says that, that the The gods of the nations are really demons working 
in the lives of human beings. They are no gods at all, and insofar as there is any reality behind them, it is demonic power working among men. These fallen angels created by God, these creatures that are mere creatures. There is only one God. And God, through the plagues, enacts His judgments. He executes His judgments on these so-called gods of Egypt. And what that tells us is that as we think about this for ourselves today, because we don't have these little, uh, these gods of Egypt, we don't worship this pantheon of deities, what it tells us today is that God's glory smashes idols. As we think about it today, we have idols. We have idols in our culture. We have idols in our own hearts, idols in our lives that we sort of came here to church with this morning. And as we read something like the ten plagues, we recognize that God's glory, who he is, his power, his supremacy, it lays waste to our idols. There's only one way to uproot idols in our lives. You say, well, I've, I know that I've got these idols in my life, life and I'm, I'm not sure how to get rid of them or what to do. There's only one way to get rid of idols, and that is to see God in his glory. The more that God becomes great, the more that these so-called gods become nothing. And that's what the plagues do. That's the effect of these plagues. It lays waste to the so-called gods of Egypt and the so-called gods of all of us. Last week, we looked at the first plague. The Nile turned to blood. All the surface water in Egypt, everywhere where you would see water on the ground, changed from drinkable water to blood. We were told last week that all the fish died and the Nile stank. It was a, a wretched time. For the Egyptians. Egyptians are forced to dig wells along the Nile, able to find water only from subterranean sources. They have to scurry around to dig these wells just so they can stay alive and have enough water to drink, have enough water to give to their animals. Otherwise, all the pools, all the rivers, all the canals, the Nile itself, and all that is attached with it, even in the utensils of wood and stone or among the trees and rocks, however that's translated, everywhere the surface water transformed to blood. The response in Egypt, we read last week at the end of our passage, chapter 7, verses 22 to 23, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. So that's where we ended last week, and seven days pass, as we see in verse 25, and then beginning today, seven days pass, and Yahweh commands Moses to confront Pharaoh again. And I like the way, as you read through the plagues, God just comes to Moses, and he says, okay, it's time for you to go to Pharaoh again. And what's interesting about this is Moses has to trust God through the whole ordeal. God has given Moses a sketch of what's going to play out. He's given him a sketch of what's going to happen. But Moses has not been told, now there will be ten plagues. There will be this one and then this one and they will become more and more intense. God has communicated to Moses what the the final plague will be. 
He has communicated the death of the firstborn. But he, he doesn't tell Moses the itinerary. He doesn't tell Moses, I'm going to come to you, and then a week later, and then this plague is going to happen for this long, and then I'm going to come to you. And what it tells us is that Moses simply has to walk with God. He has to walk with God in obedience, trusting God, trusting God's providence, trusting God's control, and simply responding to God as he speaks. That's the relationship we have here, and it's a relationship that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, with those ultimate patriarchs who walked with God, people like Noah and people like Abraham. Here we have Moses as he walks through the plagues. He is walking with God. And at the beginning of chapter 8, God tells Moses, oh, it's time. It's time for you to go back to Pharaoh again and to present the one demand, the one demand that is always there from Yahweh. Let my people go that they may serve me. What's the issue? The issue is worship. What is Pharaoh standing against? He is standing against the worship of the one true God. He is an enemy of worship. He stands against God, he stands against God's word, and he stands against God's praises. So God says, let my people go that they may serve me. And as we'll see today, these words set in motion the second plague, which we're going to look at today, the plague of frogs. So I'll give you the title appear on the screen. Very simply, the second plague, frogs everywhere. Last week, the first plague, Nile to blood. This week, frogs everywhere. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. This is the holy word of God. <clears throat> Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron. So right there between verses four and five, you get implied Pharaoh's refusal. He does refuse. So verse 5, and the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts. And made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. By the way, notice uh, the frogs cover the land when the Lord does it. And these magicians are somehow able to make some frogs come up on the land. Verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. 
Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God or Yahweh our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Pharaoh went out from Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we understand his word, as the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts, that we would be obedient, that we would be receptive, that our hearts would be hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone, as we come before and come under the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled to be here this morning with your people, gathered before your face. How often we read in Scripture this idea of being before your face or before your eyes. Lord God, we carry out all of life Before the face of God. Coram Deo. Lord we praise you that. You are always present. You are always with us. God in any moment. We can cry out to you. We can come to you. And Lord all of the moments of our lives. Are lived with you. Over us. Beside us. Before us. God we praise you that this is who you are. You are not just some amazing. Powerful deity that we should fall on our faces before, but you are the God who cares for us, the God who created us, who redeemed us through the blood of your Son, who has made us your personal possession for all eternity. You have exalted us to eternal joy. You have exalted us to reign with Christ forever. Father, we praise you this morning for our identity in Jesus, and we ask that today our hearts would be stirred by this time together, Lord, that this would not just be another Sunday, another time to see people we know, another time to get together. Lord, we pray that this would be a time of worship for each of us, not just collectively, God, but that we would worship you from the heart. God, would you stop our minds from distractions, each of us now. Help us to be engaged with your word. Help us to listen closely. And I pray that your spirit would sovereignly and graciously do his sanctifying work in each of our hearts. Father, we pray for salvation for the lost. We pray for your great work in the hearts of our children that they would come to see. That all the gods of this age which the world puts before their eyes to bow down to. Which their very own hearts are drawn to. That they would see that these gods are nothing. And that you alone are to be worshipped as the true God. Father, would that shine forth through all of these sermons on the plagues. Through all of these sermons through Exodus. And God, would that shine brightly today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the second plague 
this morning, Moses' description can be divided into two parts. As we, as we look at this plague account, I think it can be divided into two parts. And those are our two points for today. You'll see those up on the screen. So the second plague, frogs everywhere. And then our two points for this morning are first, the irritating punishment. And that's verses 1 to 7. So the description of the plague itself. And then secondly, the intercessory prayer, which is a new feature we get in verses 8 to 15. So the irritating punishment and the intercessory prayer. So let's look first at the irritating punishment. For that, I want us to put the spotlight on verses 1 to 7. So let's read those carefully together. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Here we begin with a warning from Yahweh to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. That's how this text begins. Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The God of the universe has spoken. The God of heaven and earth, the God who created all people, including Pharaoh himself, the God who has chosen Israel as his very own, his firstborn, this God speaks. This is the God who has revealed his nature as I am who I am. Who are you, God? What shall I say about you? Who shall I say you are when I go to the Israelites? Moses asks at the burning bush. And God says, I am who I am. Tell them the I am sent you. So he is the God who has revealed himself as the I am. And his name is Yahweh. Or he is God declares himself as I am, and God's people call him he is. And when this God speaks, all must listen. There is no higher authority than this God, no court of appeal, nowhere to run from his seeing eyes. He is the king. He is the judge. He is the Lord over all the earth. You know, when the Bible says that every human being will stand before God one day. All of us in this room, you know, life is short. You can look back, you see how quickly your life's gone by up to this point. Soon enough, each of us will stand before God. And in that day, when we stand before God, there will be no one to whom we can appeal. When God's justice stands before us. The only one who acts as a mediator between God and man, is the man Christ Jesus. If you came here this morning and you do not have Christ, you have nothing. 
you have nothing. Without Christ, your life is empty, meaningless, pointless, and it will soon end. And one day you will stand before this king, this judge, and his wrath will consume you forever, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who saves us from the wrath to come, who saves us from this God who speaks and who controls all. Pharaoh might be the king of Egypt, but Yahweh is the king of the universe. And the only reason that Pharaoh is the king of Egypt is because God, the God of history, has sovereignly ordained that this man in this line on this patch of land, really quite pitiful when you think of it, just a little patch of land there, the whole world, the whole universe. The only reason he even has that level of control is because God has ordained it. And Moses and Aaron here are God's chosen instruments. Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh. It is not a contest between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron. They are mere instruments, mere instruments of God. They come in the name of the Lord. It's not Moses or or Paul or Peter or John or any of the figures of the Bible whom we look to. These are instruments of God. They are prophets of God. They come in the name of God. So God tells Moses that he is to warn Pharaoh that if he refuses to listen to Yahweh's word, to obey Yahweh's command, if he refuses to listen to the king of the universe, if he refuses to listen to the God who has laid claim to this people, then he will face the frogs. Now, it sounds a little silly to us in part, right? I mean, you think frogs? I mean, really, of all things, frogs? This is what God does to Egypt. Well, there is meaning behind all of this. Obviously, we'll talk about that a little more in a moment. And as we see, the plagues progress. God turns, you can understand, God turns the land of Egypt itself that he created against Pharaoh and his people. He turns the very land itself against those people. Now we get various layers of description here for this frog plague. I want us to look at each of the layers of this description, how it is described here in the passage. So first, from the basic language used, we see that this is a full-scale, massive infestation of frogs. It is utterly unimaginable to us. We've never seen anything or experienced anything remotely close to this. We see how full-scale it is from a few places, from the basic language. Verse 2, I will plague, notice this, all your country with frogs. And then in verse 3, the Nile shall swarm with frogs. This word swarm takes us all the way back to the creation account. The moment when God made the creatures of the waters, the creatures of the ocean to swarm around in the waters. This this picture of sort of lifelessness and then this burst, this massive burst and flurry of activity and life of insouledness. If we understand soul to be a principle of life, not the soul we have made in the image of God. This movement, this intensity, all of a sudden, out of nothing. That's what we read in Genesis 1. 
We also get this language here used of swarming or teeming. We get this in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, when the people began to multiply in the land. When we first started Exodus, we saw that God had been with his people. He was multiplying them in the land of Egypt. And that's the language used. They, they begin to swarm. They begin to fill the land exceedingly. So we get this word all. We get this word swarm. And then in verse 6, the frogs came up, and here it is, covered, covered the land of Egypt. So this is not just more frogs than normal. This is not just, you know, all of a sudden we'd find one down here by my feet and you may have some of you, a few in your seat or whatever, and they're just around, you know, hopping around in different places. That's not the picture we get here at all. It is a dramatic inundation of these creatures. An extreme multiplication of frogs. And by the way, this is not like the cute little tree frogs on your window at night. You know, at our house, uh, any, any night in the, during the summer, you can go to the front and to the back. And we got the, these, these little cute green, they're amazing to look at, these little cute green tree frogs stuck to the window. This is not what we're talking about. These are more like big fat toads. Fat, slimy, ugly, croaking toads. And not just one or a handful or a couple buckets full, but covering the land, all over the land, swarming about. So just from the basic language, we see that. Second, we get the extent of the infestation described in detail in verses 3 to 4. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls, the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Now notice the repetition of the word your. Your house, your bedroom, your bed, the houses of your servants and your people, your ovens, your kneading bowls, on you and on your people and on all your servants. Wow! How much that word is repeated. Pharaoh himself, we are being told, is the target. Pharaoh is the cause of this plague, and he is the ultimate target of this plague. He is bringing this on his entire nation. This is an act of judgment on the Egyptians as a whole. We understand that because they have enslaved God's people. All of the injustices that have been done, all of the beatings that have been carried out, all of the ways that the Hebrews have been mistreated, all of the infants who have been thrown into the Nile. As we read early on in the Exodus, God is bringing his judgments on Egypt. But all of this is centered on this obstinate, unwilling, unyielding Pharaoh. The presence of the frogs extends from top to bottom, from the common people to the Pharaoh himself. It extends from the Nile all the way to the bedroom. Even more, frogs will be found where they make their food. You'll open up your oven and there'll be frogs in your oven. And I think the implication is frogs in your food. You will go to scoop out some of your food and there's a frog. And not just one frog, but many frogs. They're everywhere. That's what we're being told. And to top it all off, verse 4 says this, The frogs shall come on 
you and on your people and on all your servants. So they're not just in the beds. They're not just in the kitchen. They're not just in the bowls. They're on the people. You can't get them out of your hair. You can't get them out of your clothes. They're in your shoes. They're everywhere covering the land. Finally, we get a third layer of description when Moses commands Aaron in verses 5 to 6. This is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So here we see that the frogs come up from every body of surface water. Now, I I mentioned last week that all the Egyptians lived within five miles of the Nile. It is the source of life, which is why it's so dramatic when the Lord, through Moses and Aaron, turns the Nile into blood. So everyone lives within five miles of the Nile, but most people live much closer than five miles to the Nile. And all of the bodies of water, the canals and the rivers that come off of the Nile, all of these become the launching pad for frogs. It's not just the Nile, it's every body of surface water, just as before, connected with the Nile. This becomes the launching pad for a sea, an army of frogs, all connected to the Nile. All of a sudden, frogs start pouring out of the bodies of water in Egypt. And notice this, they immediately move right into the domestic sphere. It's not as though they just hang out by the water. They're teeming and swarming in the water. They come up on the edge of the water. They're sort of hanging out along the banks. It's not as though they're congregating in the fields. It is as though they are programmed by Yahweh. These little creatures, they are programmed by Yahweh to find the people, to go to the people, to go where the people sleep, to go where the people eat, to go to the bodies of the people. The imagery is like an army, an overwhelming army of frogs in attack mode. We know frogs don't attack, but they are covering everything. They are covering the people. And this tells us that God is striking the people This is not just some natural happening. This is not just something that happened and it uh, gave rise to stories and all of that. It's not just an inundation of frogs because the Nile flooded and the fish died. Frogs escaped the Nile. And so there's more frogs than usual on the land. These These are programmed frogs moving into the domestic sphere by the hand of their maker. By the Lord. It is an act of judgment on them. But at this stage, I think we can still say that this is merely an irritating punishment. That's the reason I've entitled this point, The Irritating Punishment. At this point, when we compare it with what's going to come down the line in the other plagues, I think we would say that we're still in the level of just irritation. Damage, significant damage not being done, just simply being annoyed out of their minds. And of course, we can imagine But why is God doing it this way? Scholars 
debate, and you may have read some of this, the extent to which the plagues are meant to target specific Egyptian gods. This is one of the things that people discuss when they talk about the plagues. And scholars have debated to what extent are the plagues meant in how they are described, in what they are attacking and what's being done, in in what way are they meant to depict the Egyptian gods or to be directed towards the Egyptian gods. Some argue that each plague is directed towards a specific aspect of Egypt's religion, a specific figure among the Egyptian gods. Others argue that the plagues are more general in nature, targeting Pharaoh and the gods in general, and that efforts to identify specific plagues with specific gods has been overdone. That You know, this is far-reaching. It's kind of reaching for something that's not there. I am more persuaded by the first argument. I'm more persuaded to see that the plagues do confront specific aspects of Egyptian religion, although one has to be careful not to overreach. You know, find, read a plague and then go and just sort of rustle through all the little aspects of Egyptian religion and begin to sort of invent things and begin to attach plagues to specific uh, Egyptian deities where it just kind of becomes far-fetched. So we have to be careful not to do that. And I would say some of the popular descriptions of the plagues have done that. But I think nonetheless, we are to understand that this is to be a specific attack on Egyptian religion. It is a specific attack against the gods of Egypt, as we read in Exodus 12, 12. In this case, John McKay, one commentator, describes the frog-headed goddess Hecate. And I'll read this to you. The goddess Hecate, one of the eight primeval deities of Egypt, was portrayed as a woman with a frog's head. It reminds us of Romans 1, right? That they replaced the invisible God with images of birds and animals and creeping things. And this is an example. I was reading John Calvin recently, and he commented on how uh, the we see human beings, the fact that human beings would actually bow down and worship frogs and snakes and crocodiles and other sorts of things demonstrates that in every human heart there is this religious impulse. Why else would human beings, as prideful as we are and as self-exalting as we are, create religions where we bow down to inferior creatures? It demonstrates the truth that we have this Religious impulse. So let me start over. I interrupted that quote there. The goddess Hecate, one of the eight primeval deities of Egypt, was portrayed as a woman with a frog's head and was considered as having assisted her husband, Knum, the creator god, in bringing mankind into existence. The Egyptians thought of frogs as sacred animals, symbols of new life and growth, and not to be killed. This is the way the Egyptians thought about frogs. And in fact, uh, a number of frog amulets have been found. They would actually wear jewelry with little frogs on them. This was a part of the religious life of the Egyptians. So what does Yahweh do? He turns a sacred animal into an absolute nuisance. I guarantee you, after that day, no one is buying a frog amulet. No one is interested in wearing a picture of a frog. He takes an animal not to be killed. And at the end of the plague, he piles up their dead bodies in heaps. 
So the Egyptians are looking around at the end and they're seeing piles and piles of dead, stinking, oh, it'd be awful, stinking frogs. Yahweh turns the sacred into a plague and he shows that Hecate has no control over the frogs. Just like Hopi, the god of the Nile, Hecate is shown to be powerless. And that is what the Lord is doing. And by the way, remember, God is working evangelistically. When we read the plague account, we have to say God has two primary objectives. Objective number one is to show his glory and dominate the Egyptian gods, so-called. And his other primary objective is to free the people from slavery. But what we understand is that God is also evangelistically working. Remember that when the Israelites leave Egypt, they leave with a mixed multitude of people. And this would have included all sorts of foreigners who were living in Egypt. Remember, we're not just talking about Israelites and Egyptians. There's all sorts of people living in Egypt. And these people from all over the world are seeing the glory of Yahweh. They're seeing that the gods of the Egyptians, the greatest people on earth, are really nothing, and that Yahweh alone is the Lord. One thing that we need to focus on here is God's power. You know, it's easy for us to miss the forest for the trees. You go through the plagues and a lot of trees. There's a lot of trees to look at, but we cannot miss the forest for the trees. The forest here in all of this is God's power. God created water, and he created frogs. And the Lord God is able to do whatever he wills with his creation. The plagues force us to reflect on the sheer power of God. The sheer power of God to create and then to mold and shape and control his creation. We think about Christ in the New Testament. As he multiplies the loaves and the fishes for the 5,000 and for the 4,000, he shows himself to be the creator. It is only God who can do this multiplication. It is only God who can bring things into existence. It is only God who has this kind of control and power over his creation. And as we read these plagues, we consider... That this is who we pray to when we say, our Father in heaven. When we pray to God, as we go through God's word, as we go week after week after week through books of the Bible, from passage to passage to passage, we are storing up more and more information, more and more of an understanding, a clearer and clearer picture of who this God is. When we are in trouble, when our hearts are cast down, when life is challenging, when trials come, when we're attacked and persecuted, slandered, we're getting more and more of an understanding of who this God is to whom we say, Abba, our Father in heaven. He is the God who can do this. And if he can do this, he can mold and shape and control our circumstances. He can mold and shape and control all the things we face in our lives. We can take every worry, we can take every concern, every problem, everything in our own sphere, and we can entrust that into the hands of our sovereign and omnipotent 
God. No matter what. And we can rest in Him. And know that He is in control. And know that He has the power to change what we're facing, if He wills. We are told at the end of these verses that once again... The magicians do the same thing by their secret arts. Now, here again, we don't know. Some of this might be demonic powers. Some of this might be they're really good magicians. It's a trickery sort of thing, a sleight of hand. But the one thing to consider, and we're going to be moving beyond this here soon, but the one thing to consider with the, this is the third time we've read that the magicians are able to replicate. We saw it with the staff to serpent. And then we saw it with the Nile to blood. And then we're seeing it now with the frogs. The one thing to understand is that if they had real power, they would reverse what Yahweh did. They would turn the water from blood back to water. Aha, Moses and Aaron, our gods are better. Our power is real. But they don't do that. They don't undo. All they do is make the matter worse with their so-called magical Powers And here they make some frogs come up on the land. Well, the land's covered in frogs. This is not much of a feat at all. And that is why this time it doesn't have quite the same effect on Pharaoh. At this point, Pharaoh seems pretty dismissive of his magicians. He realizes that there's some impotence and weakness there. And so that brings us to verses 8 to 15. With the intercessory prayer. So we've looked at the irritating punishment. And now we come to the intercessory prayer. So look with me. Verses 8 to 15. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said. Plead with the Lord. Plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me. And from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh. Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you. And for your servants and for your people. That the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. After the first plague, when Pharaoh's magicians are somehow able to replicate it, Pharaoh simply walks away. You remember from last week, They were able to make water turn into blood. And after that, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he simply walks away. He pays no attention to this. He goes back to what he's doing. He goes from the river to his palace, dismissive, caring nothing for this display, seemingly unfazed. But now, here with the frogs, something changes. Even though his magicians can make frogs come up on the land... Pharaoh here, surprisingly, actually acknowledges Yahweh and requests prayer. He asks that that Moses and Aaron go to Yahweh on his behalf. Now remember what Pharaoh said when Moses first came to him. So let's scroll all the way back to chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, 
who is Yahweh? This is when Moses first came to him and gave him the message. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Well, something has changed. Pharaoh has come to know a little bit about Yahweh. He did not know Yahweh before, and now he has come to know Yahweh through his effects, through his power, through his display of his glory. So now he calls Moses and Aaron back to the palace and is willing to say these words. Remarkable. Plead. Plead with Yahweh, this one whom I rejected, who I said I did not know, this one whom I said I would not obey. Plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. He actually wants Moses to pray for him. This is remarkable. And he promises that he will let the people go if Moses will plead with the Lord to remove the frogs. So how does Moses respond? Really one word, when. When would you like me, O Pharaoh, to pray for you? When would you like this to occur? It's your choice. The ball is in your court. When? When do you want me to pray on your behalf? When do you want me to intercede for you to Yahweh? Verse 9, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people. Now, interestingly, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Pray for me tomorrow. Plead with the Lord to remove the frogs tomorrow. Which leaves us scratching our heads when we read that. We're like, what? Why would he say tomorrow? We would expect him to say right now. This very second. Pray now. Let's do it together. But that's not what he says. So what's going on here with this tomorrow? Well, Commentators have debated what is going on here, and it may be that tomorrow is Pharaoh's way of saying as soon as possible. It may be that tomorrow does mean as soon as possible. Go and pray that this will happen as soon as tomorrow. In other words, no more days of this plague, please. The very next day, we don't know what time of day it is at this point that Pharaoh has come and spoken. It could be at the end of the day. We don't know. So Pharaoh could just simply be saying as soon as possible, and there's really nothing here to draw out of this word tomorrow. Or maybe Pharaoh is holding on to some level of control here. This is his stubbornness. He's obstinate. Not right now, tomorrow. Just wait. Maybe something else will happen. Maybe his magicians are still working on uh, something that they can come up with to make this stop. Or maybe it'll just fizzle out and Yahweh won't be glorified to the extent that he would be otherwise. We don't know uh, the significance of tomorrow, but either way, we know that the point of the text is what Moses says next. So don't get lost on tomorrow. The point is what Moses says next. Look at verses 10 and 11. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you, and your houses and your servants and your people, they shall be left only in 
the Nile. And this is amazing. Moses is confident that God will act. We get no report here that Moses has, has gone to God and said, okay, God, so I'm going to tell him that he gets to pick the time, and when he does it, then you're going to do it, right, at that time. There, there's no conversation like that. Moses boldly and confidently in his vocation, out of the larger command that God has given him, he steps out and he says, Pharaoh, you tell me when, and I'll pray then, and God will do it. This is amazing. This is an amazing expression of the intimacy that exists between Moses and God, the confidence that God's servant here has in the Lord. God will do this in order that Pharaoh may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There, there, there's, there's that sense of belonging there. Moses, the Lord, he says, the Lord, our God. This is our God, the God of the universe, the God who controls frogs, the God who made water, the God who made heaven and earth is our God. This is always the sense of the people of God. We lose this. God is not just our God. He's the God of the universe, but in that he's our God, that we have him as ours. We possess him as our God. He lives inside of us by his spirit. That level of intimacy, that level of closeness that we enjoy where we could call this infinite eternal one, my God. He is incomparable to any other so-called deity. He alone is God. And God wants To show this to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And Moses says, this is the reason we're going to do it this way. I'm going to pray when you say, you you name the date, you name the time. I'm going to pray, God's going to do it. And you're going to see that there is no one like our God. This is like what is said in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 9. Know therefore today, this is Moses speaking to the people. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart That the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. So let me just ask you this. Have you laid this to your heart? Have you laid to your heart? As Moses tells the people there gathered in the wilderness. Have you laid it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath? And that there is no other God. We are told then that Moses goes out and he cries out to God. He intercedes for Pharaoh. This language of crying out to God, this is intense prayer. This isn't, okay, God, you do it now. This is intense prayer. Moses is is putting himself before the Lord and he is crying out to God. He's entreating the Lord to act in a majestic way, to show his glory. And he is praying for Pharaoh. He prays for his enemies, as we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He is praying for the man who has done so much injustice and who has horrifically treated his very own people. But he prays for him nonetheless. And we're told here that God answered Moses. He did according to the word of Moses. Notice that in verse 13. 
Moses prays and God did according to the word of Moses. I just want to say this to us. What incredible power we have in prayer. We neglect prayer all the time. We take prayer so lightly. And sometimes we turn it into just some sort of psychological self-help, kind of thinking out loud sort of thing. But consider the power of prayer. That when Moses prays to the Lord, we get no record that he consulted the Lord. We get no record that he made sure beforehand that God would actually do this. We just see Moses in his mission praying to the Lord. And it says here that he did according to the word of Moses. If we believed that God related to his praying people that way, we'd pray a lot more. The problem with prayer, the problem with prayerlessness is unbelief. It's not just a a failure to get up in the morning. It's not just I'm too busy. It's not just I'm too tired. It's not just, well, I get distracted. It's unbelief. It's lack of trust in the God to whom we pray. Stronger faith means more prayer. Stronger faith means more fervent prayer. It means intense prayer. It means hopeful and expectant prayer. And it means God shows up in prayer. And just as Moses said before, the frogs, as he said, died out. They died out in the houses and in the courtyards and in the fields. And they were gathered into stinking heaps everywhere. Dead frogs everywhere. It's probably groups of people in Egypt assigned. All the taskmasters who were beating the Hebrews now are on frog detail. They're all gathering up all their little teams of frog sweepers and frogs are being swept out of houses and out of courtyards everywhere into these massive piles of frogs. I think about, you know, when you go to uh, Mulchinmore or the tree guy and you see these massive piles of mulch. Huge Like that, frogs piled up everywhere. But we know that this is only the second plague. And there are still eight more plagues to go. And so we read in verse 15, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so we're being prepared. There's going to be another plague and then another one and then another one and then another one and then another one all the way up to the 10th plague. And then God is going to swallow the Egyptian army in the Yam Suf or the Red Sea as it has been translated. God is going to show his power through these plagues and he is not done yet. He is continuing to harden Pharaoh's heart, though Pharaoh is himself hardening his own heart. He's responsible for his own heart. God is hardening it so that he might display his glory. And we're only on plague two. And God has already displayed so much about his power and his glory. This little phrase, as we close this morning, this little phrase at the end, as the Lord had said... Notice that, verse 15, the end of the passage, as the Lord had said, it reminds us who is in control. In all the hardness, in all the failure, in all the delay, God is sovereignly working and in control. So listen, 
Why do things happen the way they do in our lives? Why all the difficulties and the disappointments and the delays? Why? Well, the truth is, we don't know. So many times, we just have no idea. We don't know why the difficulties and disappointments, why the delays. Why this way, God? It could have easily gone that way, and I still would have learned that thing. I still would have grown in this way. You still could have reached that person, whatever, however we reason it out in our little wisdom. We just don't know. There are many answers that we don't have and that we'll never have in this life. But here's what we do know. God, Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who sent his Son to die on the cross for sinners like us, this sovereign God is working all things for his glory and for our ultimate redemption. So in this, In all of life's trials, in all of life's difficulties and delays, we rest in the supremacy of our sovereign God. And we know that in the end, it will be glory. And it will be redemption. And it will be eternal glory in the likeness of our glorious God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word here, Lord, and in these plague stories in each of these accounts. We see your power. We see the way that you operate sovereignly with human beings. We see sin and we see prayer. We see your faithfulness to answer prayer. Lord, we see the lengths to which you go to save your people. God, we thank you that you have gone to such great lengths to save us from sin, death, and hell, that you sent your very own Son to die a sinner's death, though he was entirely without sin, a perfect, spotless lamb. You sent him to the cross to become sin for us, to take on our sin, and to forever put it away. Father, we thank you for the might and the glory which you displayed at the cross. And we pray that we would see and know and live the fact, the truth, that you alone are God. That there is none like you. That all the gods of the nations are idols. And that all the gods of this twisted culture that we bow down to weekly in our lives are nothing. They cannot hold us. They cannot give us hope. They cannot support us. You alone are our helper. In times of need, you alone are the rock of our salvation. You alone are our Father. And you will see us through till the end. Help us trust you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. And Lord, we ask your blessing on this time going through the Lord's Supper. What a blessing to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. What a blessing to do it with your people. And what a blessing to consider what's coming as we will Feast with Christ one day. Lord, help us to examine our hearts as we come forward now. Help us to repent of our sins, to confess our sins, and to be renewed in our hearts and our consciences before your face. In Jesus' name, amen.